During the month of February, here at HRBC, we partner with Baptist Women in Ministry, one of our mystery, ministry partners, to observe the Martha Stearns Marshall Month of Preaching. Martha Marshall was a Baptist preacher back in the mid-1700s and preached in North Carolina and Georgia and influenced people throughout the centuries, women and men alike. We are grateful for her pioneering spirit that has paved the way for many women proclaimers. Today, we are very thankful to have Dr. Melissa Jackson as our guest proclaimer. Dr. Jackson is an Old Testament professor, scholar, and writer, and she's currently serving as an adjunct professor in Old Testament at the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. She has been very pleased to have Kate Honeycutt in her classes this year, and we're glad that you have such a fine teacher, Kate. Dr. Jackson is from North Carolina, came to Richmond in the late 90s to do her Master of Divinity work at the Baptist Seminary at Richmond, and then, her, and then she made her way eventually to England, where she got her doctorate, and also, she says, met her husband, Brian. Brian, I believe you're with us over on the right-hand side. Welcome, Brian. We're glad that you are here as well. Dr. Jackson, thank you for your ministry and for the influence that you are having on students like Kate and many others, and we look forward to hearing God's word through you today. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 26, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 13. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. 
Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of the tithe, giving it to the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, so that they may eat their fill within your towns. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows, in accordance with your entire commandment that you have commanded me. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that everything seen and heard, everything sung and spoken today will testify to the truth of your living word. Amen. Several summers ago, I was the camp pastor for Impact Virginia, BGAV's youth work camp. So I was preaching at the evening worship services. The theme that week was based on the Acts 1 passage we heard earlier where the disciples of Christ are instructed to move out beyond their comfortable and well-known places to break through barriers, literal and metaphorical. So in the sermons, I talked about a number of figures who themselves were part of breaking through barriers in unexpected ways. Figures such as Abraham and Sarah, who became parents of a nation when they were, well, how shall we describe it? Old. Figures such as Ruth, a woman from Moab, a bitter enemy of Israel, who became the grandmother of David, and some many greats later, the grandmother of Jesus. And as you would imagine, lots of different parts of the worship services were projected on the screen. One night, during the sermon, we put the pages of the Dr. Zeus story, The Sneetches, on the screen while I read the story aloud. Now, if you don't know it, The Sneetches is about a society of creatures that is divided because some of the creatures have stars on their bellies and some don't. Those with stars see themselves as superior to those who don't. Hijinks ensue, of course, all in good rhyme. But eventually, the creatures overcome this division and begin to live together as one community. It's a great story. So the first week of camp, after the service, when I had read the Sneetches, I was standing down front with the rest of the staff, and I glance up, and I see... Coming towards me, this man, he was moving with purpose. His arms were pumping, and there was thunder on his face. And I knew pretty much what was about to happen. So I took a deep breath, and I greeted him pleasantly as he planted himself in front of me. There was, so I found out from this man, a list of things that I needed to be set straight on. So... He worked his way through the list, and then he finished with an outraged, and Dr. Zeus, that's a children's book. It has no place in worship. And he stomped off. Now, here's the thing. 
When we dimmed the lights to show the images from the book, and I started reading, a hush fell over the sanctuary. Now, have you ever been in a room with 150 teenagers when you could hear a pin drop? No, you haven't. None of us has because it's never, ever happened before. But that night, it did happen for about five minutes. Those teenagers who may or may not have been interested in what the Bible had to say about breaking through barriers were on the edge of their seats to hear what Dr. Zeus had to say about it. What was happening in that worship service was not really that I was reading a Dr. Zeus story. What was happening in that worship service was that we were listening together to a story that was teaching us something about who we are and who we are meant to be. Today's passages from Deuteronomy 26 and from Psalm 136 show us that the ancient Israelites knew the importance of telling and remembering stories. For them, the corporate retelling and remembering of their story was embedded in their worship and in all their sacred rituals and celebrations. Every time they gathered as a people, over and over, again and again, they told their story. The practice reminded them who they were and who they were meant to be. But not just that. This retelling was the way that they taught their story from one generation to the next. Now, the first five books of the Old Testament are often known by the term Torah. And that word usually gets translated into English as law. Crinkle my face because that's really a mistranslation. Torah actually means teaching, instruction, guidance. Now, think for a moment what you hear when I say the word law. A list of rules, don't do this, do that. A written code that includes consequences for what happens if you, if you don't do what you're supposed to do and you do do what you're not supposed to do. A system you are bound to uphold whether you consent to it or not. Now think for a moment about what you know about the books of the Torah. Think about Genesis or Exodus. Those books can't be described as being lists of rules. Those books are books of stories. Stories foundational for the Israelites. Who they were. How God had chosen them and loved them. How God had been present with them. Saving them. Providing for them. Healing them. Reconciling them. And not just any stories, but stories that connected them to their past in ways that gave life to their present and inspired their hopes for the future. Not unlike the gospel stories of Christ and not unlike our yearly journeys through Advent and Christmas, through Lent and Easter, stories of our past linked to our present and to our future. Torah is teaching, guidance, 
sacred instruction. And yes, the Torah includes lots of sections that we would rightly identify as laws, but the purpose of Torah is to guide and to teach, and it does that in large part through the telling of their story, generation after generation. And if we stop to consider, we can recognize the truth of this in our own lives. We affirm the ritual of story time for children, but then somewhere along the way, we seem to stop emphasizing how important the ritual of storytelling is as adults. Yet, hearing, listening, remembering stories is one of the primary ways that we connect, and it's one of the primary ways that we learn about ourselves, about each other, about our faith. Before I get to the end of this sermon, I will tell you no less than four stories. And I doubt this is out of the norm for a service in most congregations like this one. And think about when we meet someone, we would never say, Now, give me some raw data about yourself. Or, what are the ten rules that govern your daily living? We say, what do you do? Where are you from? What brought you here? Do you have a family? What do you do for fun? We say, tell me about yourself. Which is to say, tell me a story about who you are. For example, here's a story about me. Sort of. Really, I guess it's a story about my husband, at least... That's how it begins. As you heard, I met Brian in England at church, as it turns out, soon after I moved there to do my doctoral work. As I started to get a little interested in him, I started to notice things about him a bit more, as you do. So one night at our weekly church discussion group, Brian came in and walked over to an open seat a few tables over. He was wearing a navy pullover, And the shirt underneath appeared, from what I could see of collar and cuffs, to be stripes, mostly of shades of blue, purple, and white. As he sat down, he pulled the sweater off, and it took all my powers of concentration not to spew my tea across the room because nothing could have prepared me for what that shirt really looked like. Yes, It was stripes, mostly of shades of blue, purple, and white, but all down the front, it had this scrolly embroidery. And it was a shade of blue that completely clashed with every other color in that shirt, which was no easy thing considering the vast number of different colors that shirt had going on. Now, I have to be honest and say that in that moment, I seriously reevaluated the thought of any future with Brian in it. But I overcame that embroidery. And as Brian and I got to know each other, one day I asked him about this shirt. And he replied, breezy as you please, oh, that shirt is part of my hideous shirt collection. Do tell. I said. When he was a teenager, he was invited to a party with a beach theme. Now, apparently, in the 1980s in England, beach theme meant wear the most hideous shirt you could find with the most hideous pair of shorts you could find. 
So, when Brian went looking for something to satisfy the beach theme, he found a shirt that was, in his estimation, truly spectacular, meaning truly hideous. The twist then comes after the party. Everybody else shoved their party clothes to the back of the closet, not ever to see the light of day again. Brian, on the other hand, thought his hideous shirt was comfortable, so he kept on wearing it. And while the comments he got would have prompted you and me to reconsider, they only inspired Brian to keep wearing it. And then, on occasion, to buy another shirt. Until eventually he had a good half dozen, certainly enough to deem them altogether a hideous shirt collection. Now, I, I just want to echo what y'all are already thinking. It takes a special kind of person to see a shirt and say, wow, that is hideous. And then follow it immediately with, I think I'll try that on. That's what Brian does, and more significantly, that's the kind of person Brian is. And I didn't learn this about him by reading a list of what was hanging in his closet, and I did not learn it through his theories about fashion and the opinions of others. I learned it through listening to his story. And in listening to his story... And in remembering that story every time that hideous embroidered shirt has made an appearance in my life, it has become my story too. Because now when I'm out with him and I see a shirt that prompts me to say to myself, wow, that is hideous, I follow it up with, hey Brian, you should try this one on. Now, I will grant you that a story about my husband's choices of clothing is an unlikely path to deep theological insight. So, let me tell you another story. Elie Wiesel was 15 years old in 1944 when he and his family were sent to Auschwitz. Wiesel managed to survive the concentration camps. His parents and one of his three sisters did not. Wiesel went on to write numerous books, and one entitled Night is probably his most famous. And he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. He died in 2016, but quite a few years before that, I had the privilege to hear him. He sat informally in a chair on an unadorned platform, and he spoke. It was his own story woven in with his message about peace and suffering and dignity. It was horrifying and it was beautiful. It was a holy experience. In the question time afterwards, he was asked, what can those of us who are not witnesses to this now passing chapter of world history do to keep the message alive. Wiesel responded simply and without pause. To lit listen to a witness is to become a witness. To listen to a witness 
is to become a witness. Now that's a word, witness, that in a room full of Baptists conjures up a thing or two, doesn't it? I remember my youth minister passing out the index cards and coaching us on writing down our three-minute testimony to have it ready to whip out just in case the opportunity came for us to witness terror-inducing memories, those. Too often, the church's understanding of what it means to witness reduces it to a blunt instrument to be used only by those whose central desire is to bring people to Jesus. And as such, it places the focus on the boldness of the one witnessing and on that person's success. It shifts the focus away from the story and onto the storyteller. That doesn't capture what it means to be a witness. Listen again to Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. The story that we tell certainly has us in it. But it doesn't point to us. It points beyond us to God and to Christ and their work in us and in the world. We are called to bear witness to the great acts of God's story, to the great acts of God's story in Christ, to the great acts of God's story unfolding in us and amongst us. To bear witness to these great acts knits us together as a community. We listen to the story of God. We listen to the story of others. We share our own story too. These are the stories that we share and it becomes our shared story. Now, I am truly pleased to be here with you today, appreciative of an opportunity to worship among you. However, I can't also help but be a little sad that we as Baptists are still having to work so hard to carve out a space for women to have an opportunity to stand where I am standing and to live out their calling. So many, of course not all, but so many Baptist congregations have heard women tell the story of their calling from God. They have heard, but they have not listened. They are listening instead to a voice insisting that this calling cannot be true. And because they have not listened, truly listened to the witness of others, they cannot themselves bear witness to this good news of God's story unfolding in these lives. That night I told you about at Impact Virginia, well, I was speaking later with one of the Impact Virginia leaders who happened to be within earshot of the exchange. And that person said to me, he doesn't believe we should have women preaching at Impact Virginia. That man was not able to hear me, not able to hear my story, or to hear the story that I was trying to tell those young people. 
He was not able to hear as we stood together in that sanctuary with all those exhausted, giddy, fulfilled teenagers milling about that our story, his and mine, was the same story. Lately, it has gotten shamefully easy to cease seeing people as fellow human beings and to instead reduce them to existing merely as their political views, their zip code, their race, ethnicity, their gender. We strip others of their humanity by refusing to listen to and bear witness to their stories because we think somehow something is wrong or that their story is just too different. But in truth, there is just one story. Ultimately, the one story that we are all called to bear witness to is the story of God's love. Now, the Psalms are something like an ancient prayer book, and many of the Psalms were used in corporate worship. So our Psalm today, 136, was likely one of them. It is a worshipful Psalm that remembers the story of the people and the people respond in affirmation of the God whose steadfast love endures forever. Now I hear lots of preachers and teachers speak of the different Greek words for love, so I would be shortchanging you if I didn't give Hebrew its equal time. So, The word translated as steadfast love in Hebrew is chesed. It's difficult to pronounce, and it's even more difficult to capture in translation. Chesed is certainly love, and chesed is certainly steadfast. It's also love that implies a deep commitment, an over and above expression of that commitment Born out in action. Acts done for the good of others that do not require or necessarily even expect to be reciprocated. It is love that puts others above self. In the language of the Old Testament, it is covenantal love. Psalm 136 begins with God's great work in creation, then continues on beyond the verses that we read together earlier to tell the story of the people coming out of Egypt and entering the promised land. Woven into the story then comes the refrain again and again, God's chesed endures forever, having no beginning and no ending, continuous without interruption. God's acts of salvation are God's acts of chesed. It is a story held together with love. A sacrificial, committed love that is not just of God, but is a love that we too are called to enact. In Deuteronomy 26, the passage that I read, the people remember their story, this time beginning with, in verse 5, Jacob, the wandering Aramean, and ending with the promised land in verse 9. 
What happens at the beginning of verse 10 then is crucial and it's wonderful. After remembering their story, the words that follow immediately are, so now I bring. That phrase, so now, isn't just a throwaway transition phrase to move us from one section to another. The phrase has temporal forcefulness. Now at this present moment. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. The people remember and then the people immediately respond. First, by bringing and sharing together before God the bounty they have collected. And second, by bringing and sharing the bounty they have collected with those who are in need. Retelling their story compels their response. Remembering their past reveals to them what God requires of them in their present. And what is required of them? To bring the bounty to God in worship and to bring the bounty to those who are vulnerable. This is the nature of chesed, love of God and love of others. And to show our love for God is to show our love for one another. To show our love for one another is to show our love for God, chesed. The Israelites understood this not as two acts, but as one. An enmeshment of our worship and our daily living. And so, as did the Israelites, we find ourselves gathered here in worship. And we gather as one, even in the midst of our differences. Our day-to-day lives are different, our experiences are different, our despairs and our hopes, our joys and our sorrows, they are different. Yet we share a story A story that unites us in a way that no physical, emotional, or spiritual barrier, either real or imagined, can separate. So if you're counting, this is going to be story number four. On the first day of a Christian education course I took in seminary, the professor showed us a list of ten random words, then gave us five minutes in which we were to memorize the list in order. At the beginning of the next class meeting, he asked us to write down the list. So there were about 20 people in the class, and most of us could remember, I don't know, six to ten of the words, and maybe get them loosely in the right order. A week later, the professor asked us again to write down the list. I think I remembered maybe half of them. I could remember at all about what order they were in. In the class, one person remembered all ten words, and in the right order. The professor got one of those irritating, knowing looks that professors get sometimes as he asked this student who had managed to remember the list how he'd done it. The student replied, I turned the words into a story. 
As long as I remembered the first word, I knew the rest. In the beginning, God. As we remember those first words, we can know the rest. A story that continued on from Genesis to our ancestors, the Israelites. A story that became the word enfleshed among us. The story that brings hope, healing, and reconciliation to a broken world. This is the story we bear witness to. It is a story of infinitely more than ten words, but it has a single unifying thread. It is the story of God's unending, steadfast love. And it is our story of life lived in service to that unending, steadfast love. If we are to be God's witnesses, to be Christ's witnesses, we must remember our story, repeat it, celebrate it, embody it. This is the story we must become. Because remembering the story compels our response from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, to Richmond, and to the ends of the earth. Amen.